Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. This week we will be looking at issue number 503, July the 16th, 1994. I'm your host Stephen and you'll be pleased to hear that this podcast is now 100% fully vaccinated because I had my second jab only yesterday for when this comes out. So, bit of a strange issue this week. I mean, it's not that strange, but the cover stars for this week are Guns N' Roses, but there isn't a main piece in the magazine about Guns N' Roses. There's a news piece about them, and I will explain all of that in a moment. So, what I've done this week is I have chosen the music for the episode to be Suicidal Tendencies. There's a a larger piece about them, and I wonder whether that would have been, they would have been the cover stars if it wasn't for this Guns N' Roses piece. Now, 1994, I can't imagine that Suicidal Tendencies, they're a big band, but I can't imagine that they were going to shift that many copies of Kerrang! So, again, Kerrang! put Guns N' Roses on the cover, and I think this might be their third or fourth cover for the year. They were the biggest metal band in the world at that point. So, it's understandable why they do put them on the cover. You know, it makes total sense. And speaking of the cover, Guns N' Roses, Duff Dumped, question mark. Banter split, question mark. What the hell is going on? Also, Wild Hearts sack guitarist Shocker, Little Angels The Farewell Show, Priest Slam Halford, Stage Diving Fan Dies After Motorhead Gig, Plus, Paradise Lost, Corrosion of Conformity, Thunder, Suicidal Tendencies, and Whitesnake. Also, there is a face-melting US tour eight-page pullout with Pantera, Sepultura, and Biohazard. And if you are interested in getting in contact with us here at Karangback Issues, we can be found on Instagram at Karangback Issues. We have a Twitter page, Karangpod, and we also have an email account, Karangbackissues at gmail.com. Mostly what I do is post up interesting or fun bits from the magazine of that week on Instagram or Twitter. It's usually adverts for albums that are coming out or, you know, a Donington big spread or something like that. Um, as always, if you fancy giving us a follow, very welcome over there. If you want to leave a review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts as well, that's also very helpful. But, you know, it's, it's not the most important thing in the world. So let's start this week where we always start Mayhem, the hottest news in metal first. Duff fired, guns to split. Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash fires back at the latest guns-linked rumours. Guns N' Roses have sensationally sacked bassist Duff McKagan according to rumours on both sides of the Atlantic. McKagan is said to be the second casualty following a major rift in the LA Superstar outfit and is thought to have followed the departure of Guns N' Roses axeman Gilby Clark. It is a spectacular story that stunned the rock world. However, Kerrang! exclusively spoke to band guitarist and mainstay Slash this week for the real story behind what is becoming a truly shocking catalogue of GNR rumours. Not surprisingly, the reports of Duff's departure turn out to be a complete fabrication, and says Slash, clearly feeling the overbearing strain of public interference into band affairs, it is among a host of rumours that are starting to seriously aggravate the band. Slash confirmed in Kerrang! 500 that Gilby Clark was no longer in the band, but strongly denies that Duff has been sacked. He also denies reports that Dave Tregunner, former bassist with Sham69, Lords of the New Church and Kill City Dragons has replaced the blonde four-stringer. Slash told Mayhem this week, I've heard the Duff story myself over here in LA and I'm frankly really pissed off about it. It's a nasty thing for anyone to spread around. That's one of the worst rumours I've heard about us in a long time. Duff is an important member of this band and nothing has happened to change that. As for this guy, Dave Tregunner, who is he? I've never heard of him before. 
So a bit of a weird one with Kerrang here. They've put Guns N' Roses on the cover of the magazine. They've printed a rumour saying that Duff has been sacked. And then they've interviewed Slash and Slash says he hasn't been sacked. So a bit of a bit of a non-story really. I mean, I guess with this, Slash isn't really a person that can be trusted. I love Slash, I'm sorry to say that. But he did say earlier on this year that Guns N' Roses would never cover the Rolling Stones and then they covered Sympathy for the Devil. He also said that he wasn't working on solo stuff because he was working on the Guns N' Roses album. And then he announces that he's doing Slash's Slake Pit, uh, his solo stuff. So who knows what is going on at this point. I mean, obviously we know in the future what happened, but yeah, a little bit strange. Stop Press. Pearl Jam have landed another place in the record books after entering America's Modern Rock Tracks chart with a song that is not commercially available in the States. Their cut, Yellow Leadbetter, a UK B-side, which is only available on import in the USA, has entered the Radio Airplay based charts at number 26. Pearl Jam's Versus album is already in the record books as the fastest selling album of all time. Queensryche are hard at work on their new album which is scheduled for an October release through EMI. A world tour for the Seattle stars will follow. Candlebox have been added to the bill of this year's Reading Festival. Their debut album on Madonna's Maverick label is currently peaking at number 20 in the US after 33 weeks in the charts. Michael Monroe's new band Demolition 23 have lined up a one-off date at London Charing Cross Road Astoria on August the 9th. More news soon. A 21-year-old metal fan has died in hospital after sustaining serious head injuries at a recent Motorhead concert. Lee O'Connor of Eastleigh in Hampshire fell into an irreversible coma after Motorhead's London Kentish Town Forum show on June the 19th. He was treated by St John's ambulance staff at the show before being rushed to the Royal Free Hospital in Hampstead. Lee failed to regain consciousness and was pronounced dead on June 25th. A funeral was held in Eastleigh on July the 1st. It's unclear at this stage how O'Connor sustained his injuries, though he is believed to have banged his head while crowd surfing. An inquest into Lee's death was opened on June 28th and adjourned indefinitely. The health and safety executive, as well as Kentish Town Police, will present evidence when the inquest is resumed. Motorhead have been in contact with Lee's family since the incident and have been deeply saddened by the tragedy. Motorhead guitarist Wurzel told Mayhem, Lee was only 21. It's very sad. We didn't know anything had happened at the time. The crowd didn't seem that rowdy. But I guess you could have a tragic accident even at the opera. Slamming and crowd surfing pretty much goes with the territory in metal. Lee was obviously very, very unlucky. We'd like to offer our condolences to his family. Lee's grandmother, Mrs Molly Robinson, told Kerrang. Lee was a lovely lad. He came round to see me every Sunday without fail. He was really into the music. He loved bands like Iron Maiden and Hawkwind. We can't believe this has happened. According to his friend who went to the concert with him, Lee said he was going down the front to see the band and he got passed down over people's heads. It seems that he banged his head on the barrier and collapsed soon after. He went into a coma and never came out of it. It's terrible that something like this could happen at a concert. Hopefully by us talking about it, we may be able to stop something like this from ever happening again. Kerrang would like to pass on sincere condolences to Lee's family and friends. The Wild Hearts have fired guitarist CJ. The shock news comes on the eve of the completion of the Brit Stars' second LP, which is currently being recorded in Comforts Place Studios in Surrey. No official reason for CJ's departure has been given, though it is apparent that main man Ginger instigated the sacking. CJ, not surprisingly, is somewhat baffled. I honestly don't know why I've been fired, says CJ, speaking exclusively to Mayhem. I got a call from our manager, Gary Garner, who said that things between me and Ginger had got to a point where I had to go. I certainly didn't see it coming. Me and Ginger haven't been the best of buddies for the past few years, but in the context of the band, we worked well together. The lack of friendship between me and Ginger was not something I worried about. 
Ginger was scheduled to speak to Mayhem this week to discuss the situation with Kerrang journalist Ray Zell, but the unpredictable frontman changed the plans at last minute. Zell was instead invited to visit the band in the studio, albeit too late for his report to make this week's edition. Me and Ginger formed the band, says CJ. We'd known each other for years and always said we'd like to work together. I'd always felt that the Wild Hearts was as much mine as anyone's. We got on well at first, but things worsened a couple of years ago when we started to not get on too well on a personal basis. The chemistry between us created that volatile streak which spilled over into the music. You never knew when it would explode in your face. I reckon any recordings in the future will lack that spark and be a lot different. Record releases and Machine Head, the ferocious San Franciscan power metalers finally released their debut album Burn My Eyes through Roadrunner on August the 8th. The band soon head out on the road in the States, with UK dates a possibility before the end of the year. More news when we have it. Tour News and Paradise Lost have announced a series of UK live dates. The Yorkshire Doom Kings play Leeds Town and Country Club August 30th, Nottingham Rock City 31st, Birmingham Irish Centre September 1st, Charing Cross Astoria on the 2nd. The shows will be the band's first on these shores since March and follow a lengthy series of Euro Festival dates for frontman Nick Holmes and co. Down by law, the US hardcore Herbert promote new LP Punk Rock Academy fight song with live dates at the Brighton Concord July 13th, Cork Sir Henry's 15th, Dublin Barnstormers 16th, Belfast Centre 17th, Glasgow Nice and Sleazy 18th, Preston Caribbean Club 19th, Leeds Duchess 20th, Islington Powerhouse 21st, Harlow Square 22nd. And senseless things, take a break from the studio where they're recording their third album to play a brace of live dates. They can be seen at Harlow Square July 13th and Phoenix Festival on the 15th. Coast to coast now, the hottest US news as it happened. This week, we are with Lisa Johnson in Los Angeles. What a treat it was when the MTV Movie Awards came to town. Not so much that we could ooh and ah at today's top movie stars like Tom Hanks or Emilio Estevez, though Robin Williams passing by warranted a head turn. The main event wasn't even seeing those Aerosmith videos win a trazillion awards. No, it was the first and most likely only appearance by the illustrious backbeat band who, you ask, is the backbeat band? Well, it's none other than Nirvana's Dave Grohl, Afghan Wigs' Greg Dully, Sonic Youth's First and More, R.E.M.'s Mike Mills, Soul Asylum's Dave Perner, and Gumbled Don Fleming performing popular songs covered by the Beatles. The group was formed to record tracks for the recent film Backbeat, which depicts the Beatles' early years. Dully performs an unflinching reproduction of John Lennon in those early days, while Perna does a superb take on Paul McCartney, but don't bother looking for the guys in the film, only their music made it to the big screen. But you can spot a Perna um, cameo in Reality Bites, which just happens to star his girlfriend Winona Ryder. For the MTV Movie Awards, live on stage, the backbeat band ripped through three numbers. Dully belted out money. Perna's long tall Sally inspired a wild guitar jam that had first and more pinning Dully to the ground. And finally, the group closed the awards ceremony with a Beatles original Helter Skelter. Wow. Mayhem ensued. By the end of it, the six-piece had destroyed some rented 64 Fender amps, sustaining some uh, guitar damage, and Dully had severely injured his knee. No doubt by crashing into those amps, it was a moment to cherish. Also there to enjoy the rich splendour of insanity were Red Cross's Steve McDonald, Pat Smear of the Germs fame, but more uh, seen more recently guesting with Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins' Billy Corgan, Wall's Pete and Fran Stahl, and R.E.M.'s Michael Stipe. Stipe was escorting Holes Courtney Love in what was her first real public appearance since the death of Kurt Cobain. 
Following the awards and major gala thrown by MTV, Thurston Moore had one of those wild Hollywood parties in his hotel room in Sunset Strip. Naturally, all of the aforementioned Hepcats were there, whooping it up till the wee hours. Oh, I forgot to mention that John Bon Jovi and John Mellencamp also performed at the awards. Didn't catch them back at the hotel though. Next week, Don K's massive Manhattan missive. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! We now come to concerts and it's finally happened. The Little Angels have played their last concert. This review is for Little Angels at the Royal Albert Hall, London on Saturday, July the 2nd. Reviewed by Steve Beebe, this gets electrocution out of five. I think it would have been really mean, which, oh, sorry, <laughs> electrocution is five out of five. I think it would have been really mean for their last gig if they'd given them anything less than five. Life, as John Lennon once said, is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Little angels have other plans, and they're even kissing an illustrious career goodbye for them. Have they even considered that they're turning their backs on the best thing that is ever likely to happen to them? The band we learn can be taken no further, just how far does a band need to be taken to be viable? Most people agree that Little Angels are quitting with the world waiting at their feet. It is a diabolical situation. In fairness to the likeable lads from Scarborough, they sure as hell prove they know how to bow out in style. The Royal Albert Hall is a spectacular setting for anyone's farewell, and furthermore, it's a full house. It must be tempting for the band to forget about music and simply stare in amazement at the huge domed ceilings and the Little Angels banner that adorn even the most far-flung balconies. To their further credit, they don't seem even remotely overwhelmed by the occasion. Excited? Yes. Emotional? Certainly. But make no mistake, Little Angels' farewell performance was that of a brilliant band at their absolute peak. For band and fans alike, this is a celebration of Little Angels' career. People have come from places like Peterborough, Coventry and even Glasgow to hear the opening chords of She's a Little Angel and the brass flourishes on The Way That I Live for a final time. Always impressive live, Boneyard and I Was Not Wrong are absolutely magnificent tonight. Radical Your Lover, the kinky number they wrote with Dan Reed sounds fresh and as bouncy as an inflatable castle while Young Gods is a rabble-rousing salute to the fans, a song that will outlive the band. Disregarding their bizarre decision to split, Little Angels have ne um, never been affected by success. Rather like Bon Jovi, their relationship with their fans has been compounded by the intimacy of their lyrics and the fact that you can look up to the stage and see real people, not caricatures. Their full emotional range is explored on songs like Sail Away, performed as part of a brief acoustic interlude and Don't Pray For Me with which they bow out. These are ballads with simple stories and effective morals, sung with enormous conviction by Toby Jepsen. Sadly, the unbearable heat and the emotion of the occasion proved too much for some. Security staff hand out water to the front rows, but there are several casualties as the crush becomes worse. It's increasingly difficult to disentangle them. The barrier threatens to give way. Even Kerrang's photographic hardman Paul Romford Harry's looks momentarily concerned. Fortunately, there is no occurrence severe enough to dampen the party atmosphere, which the band take full advantage of. Jimmy Dickinson grins dementally at anybody whose eye he can catch from his keyboard riser. Mark Plunkett can't stop laughing. Bruce John Dickinson has grown a comedy beard especially for the occasion. Even the big bad horns, Messrs Grant, Kirk Hope and David Kempe step forward to say thank you and goodnight. The party is over. As the crowd spill out into the humid night air, there is a feeling of genuine sadness. Little Angels are finished. They have other plans, curiously. John Lennon also once asked how many holes it would take to fill the Albert Hall. The only hole tonight is that left gaping in the tapestry of British rock.
Next review is for Babes in Toyland and Ash at the Limelight Belfast on Thursday, June the 30th. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this gets a static out of 5, 3 out of 5. In the last three months, spunky Downpatrick trio Ash have acquired a greater confidence and professionalism in showing off their raw bursts of pop nirvana. Petrol, Season and Silver Surfer are greeted like old friends by the packed house and Jack Names the Planets is still one of the most invigorating slices of melodic chord mangling this side of sugar. Bright young things for discerning rock kids. Babes in Toyland are cool. The legions of stage divers don't care that the babes have only four songs with any sort of tune. The Slaphead Sisters grooving stage riot aren't bothered that after half an hour the Femtex explosions have the detonatory power of a wet paper bag. The boys blowing kisses at Laurie and Cat would be happy if they didn't sing a song all night. That's how cool the Minneapolis trio are. Occasionally, the frayed screeches of alienation and hormonal angst matter. Bruce Violet and Spit to See the Shine rage impressively, the razor wine guitar distortion cutting through the tribal swamp stomp. But far too often, Cat's cathartic psycho beast shrieks are just too much noise. We could emphasize if we knew what she was on about. The babes don't seem to have realized that lullabies of hate and pain need more than a fuzzy drone and acerbic psychobabble to hold the attention. The odd spiky melody can make so much difference. Maybe the babes are just too happy tonight to overload the intensity meter. Bassist Maureen chugs out brooding lines with a wry smile while impressible drummer Laurie Barbaro steals the show with a hummed rendition of Therapy's Meat Abstract. Riot girls wouldn't understand. The babes are too cool to worry about what anyone thinks. But next time, Cat, bring some songs. Our patience will run out eventually. Next review is for last week's cover stars White Snake, live at the Mitfins Festival Odense, Denmark, on Friday, June 24th. This review is by Paul Rees, and this gets this gets high voltage out of five. Four out of five. The Mitfins Festival is like Reading or Phoenix floating on a lake of Carlsberg. As the evening sun begins to set behind a small village of beer tents, an endless line of sunburnt Danes begins to wobble unsteadily towards the main stage. Mr. Big and Steve Lucifer and Lost Lobotomies have already played there. Lost Lobotomies is a great name. But so in keeping with the drunkenly eclectic nature of the European summer circuit have the Lemonheads and Four Non Blondes. It is the latter pairing who on the surface would seem to have been more suited to the half-cut hordes more dreadlocked and Dr. Martin than denim and leathered. It's something of a surprise then to hear the bow loosening roar that goes up when David Coverdale marches out onto the evening breeze, strikes a quite ridiculously effective pose and roars, here's a song for ya. More disconcertingly still, several thousand people who minutes earlier had been pissed but proud, new men and women, are suddenly transformed into leering gumbies when Adrian Vandenberg and Warren Martini cut open bad boys. Between them, Rudy Sarzo's bass moves from his hips via his tongue to the top of his head. Denny Carmassi's drumsticks are spinning about his raven black hair like helicopters and at the centre of it all Coverdale seems to be masturbating his microphone. We are in the wrong decade, White Snake are back. There are of course a few million souls whose lives would ne uh, not be unduly troubled by never hearing slide it in again. There are others who'd almost certainly need a change of underwear after being called crazy shit-faced vikings. But, however ludicrous he may appear, David Coverdale is the keeper of a staggeringly huge bastard of a voice, one that is steeped in the blues and capable of making something as trite as slow and easy sound like it could move mountains. And Whitesnake, for all their big hair and bad clothes, remain a mighty beast. 
Love Ain't No Stranger, Judgment Day and Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City are momentous enough to compensate for Vandenberg's and Carmassi's pointless solos. And Martini is by far the most fluid and effective guitar foil Coverdale has strapped to his side since the beer belly days of Bernie Marsden and Mel Galley. It is Coverdale though who continues to run this particular show, wrapping his plummy tones around Here I Go Again and Fall For Your Loving with his face stuck in a permanent pout. Coverdale is the sort of larger than life star that the 90s have forgotten how to make. And as far as his tongue has undoubtedly slid into his cheek, David Coverdale is still capable of giving you flashes of the giant talent he's always compromised for commerce. The first true blues tune he's written in years. Don't Leave Me This Way is sung with real conviction. Still of the Night will always be a showstopper from the top draw. White Snake 94 are undoubtedly thoroughly outdated and totally irrelevant. They'd also eat Pearl Jam for breakfast. Next review is for NoFX, Guns and Wankers and Rugrats at the Highbury Garage London on Friday, July the 1st. This review is by Morat and this gets electrocution out of 5, 5 out of 5. Rugrats have a distinct whiff of Leatherface about them, hardly surprising since their drummer and main vocalist is ex-boat tub thumper Andy Lang. His vocals are not as gravel sore as Frankie Stubbs's and there are many other influences from the melodic hardcore field. Punk as fuck and well worth checking out. If you haven't seen Guns and Wankers yet, where have you been? Jesus, they've supported everyone and their wife in all the best sweat pits twice or more. Guns and Wankers, despite valiant efforts not to, get better every time you see them pedal their breakneck melodies. They do, however, need to do a bit more on stage if they're going to be a worthwhile headline act. They warm up for anyone a treat, and here they get the pit moving with ease, and they don't want to remain the eternal support band. No effects, don't leap about as much as you might expect. Bassist vocalist Fat Mike has a busted leg, any lack of activity from the band is more than made up for by audience enthusiasm as they pummel through the likes of the Moron Brothers and stick it in my eye. The place goes apeshit. This is like punk gigs used to be. People are bouncing about all the way back to the bar with everyone getting soaked in sweat and beer. No effects are perfect tonight. Tight, furious and humorous, particularly with a minor fret cover straight edge that would clear your Sunday morning hangover no problem. Just make sure you don't miss out on these very special effects. Feel like shit. Suicidal Tendencies mouthpiece, Iron Mike Muir has a message for anybody who figures they've got it tough. Get a fucking life. Yeah, a suicidal rip it up stateside with Metallica, Muir gives Jason Arnop the suicycho state of the world address. Every record we've done, people have said we blew it and our careers over, gloat suicycho Mike Muir. It's funny how every time we do a record, it sucks when it comes out but becomes a classic when the next one appears. People just don't like us and I fucking think that's great. My career may be over, but the ugly motherfucker keeps coming back. Suicidal Tendencies are getting into the ring again with what's turned out to be their strongest and most consistent album, Suicidal For Life. Muir, Rocky George guitar, Mike Clark guitar, Rob Tregilio bass and Jimmy DeGrasso drums are currently on the road in the US with Metallica and Danzig. Tonight at Jones Beach Amphitheatre on New York's Long Island, Suicidal Rampage through the expected favourites. You can't bring me down, send me your money, plus one storming new song, Suicycho Motherfucker. This is the only place I want to be right now, so that's a good thing Muir buzzes in the tour bus post gig. It's an opportunity, people can see the band and see it as an actual musical entity rather than some preconceived image in their mind. Some people are basically into bands for the wrong reason because they don't have a life and they don't want to fit in with other fuck-ups. We've got to get rid of those people, which sounds hard, but it's true. 
If people don't want to be moved mentally, then I don't want to be around them. I've no problem with the way people choose to live their lives. I just don't like stupid people. The high-speed bombardment of Muir's opinions, theories and analogies is a dizzying but ultimately enlightening experience. Most of his philosophy is summed up by the spoken word intro and outro of the new album. Muir is telling people to think for themselves. It's about determination from within, he explains. There's a lot of things messed up in the world, that's true, but a lot of people take that as an excuse for why their life's fucked up. The thing that's most fucked up in the world is that people look in the mirror and don't like what they see. That's fucked up. And you can't blame that on the government, corporations or this and that. You can only blame that on yourself. As Suicidal noted on Gotta Kill Captain Stupid from their 1992 album Art of Rebellion, if your life sucks, you suck, adds Muir. The new album's not a record for people to put on the stereo and go, yeah, you tell them, Mike. I'd go, nah, I'm talking shit to you. Just don't call Suicidal for Life hard or angry in this man's presence. Those are key words that people use to get stupid people to like things. They've absolutely no meaning whatsoever. Except for the fucking idiots. If someone says, oh, your record's hard, it's like, what's hard? People don't know what the fuck hard is. It's insulting when people use that word in terms of music. Hard is when you watch people fuck up, ruining their lives. That's hard to watch and to be responsible for. Hard is a situation in the real terms of the world. The word fuck appears in the first four song titles on SFL for effect. Well, the best effect it has is that most stores won't carry it, he chuckles. It's not a great thing, but I'm not going to be limiting uh, by other people's lack of intelligence. It's like uh, with the name of the band. People judge it by their own definitions, not mine. You might think it's childish, but a lot of people, especially the young, are going to get this. It's a language of no nonsense. I personally don't like it when people use fuck every other word, but there's a point where you have to hammer things across. This is the first record where I feel comfortable with telling people to go ahead and judge suicidal, he asserts. If I was 16 again and I'd never been exposed to the band, I'd hear this record then go out with my suicidal cap flipped up and tell people I was suicidal. When we make records, we don't make it just for that time. Since we first started as a band, there's been a lot of trends and next big things. There's been Milli Vanillis, New Kids, Poisons, Warrants, and none of them can do shit anymore. No one even uh, admits to having even bought their records. I'm not really worried about accolades and stuff. I think what's important is that a lot of kids who are six years old now are gonna buy Suicidal for Life in 10 years time. All these fucking old fogies who are into punk rock or metal or whatever will be like the fucking hypocritical hippies. It's no coincidence that hypocritical and hippie are very close together. In Suicidal's world, trying is everything. Muir learned much from his father's strong work ethic. When you get down to it, I think I'm a very caring and sensitive person, he offers. I've learned simple lessons that some people never will. Most of my family isn't from this country, so the family is very small. I had an uncle that lived to a hundred and something years old, and I later found out he was a millionaire. Only problem was, he used to give his money away to things like college scholarships. I was 10 and I couldn't understand why he could be so dumb. Instead of living in a big ass mansion, he lived in a rickety old home with the same furniture he'd had for 50 years. Then he showed me this book full of the people who went on to get the scholarships. I realised what shit really means and what matters. It's amazing when you see someone give people shit to do something and make the world a better place. There's a line between luxury and necessity, he warns. One of my first girlfriends was very rich and it was fucking hell. Her line between luxury and necessity was so far over that she needed so many things. Not to be happy, but not to be miserable. That's why I fucking hate the music business. People's priorities are so screwed up. We live in a society where we look up to people because they sing a song that we like or because they play a part in a movie. That's part of the reason why people don't become what they can be. They think only other people can do that. But in fact, 
They're not putting them on a pedestal, they're digging a fucking mental hole for themselves. Too many bands attach great importance to what they're doing, like Eddie Vedder saying he'll only work with someone if they're a genius. I don't think there's anything important about being an arsehole. Anyone can do that, but most people don't get paid for it. Mike Muir knows he hasn't towed the line. The bottom line is that whatever happens to Suicidal, whatever happens to Infectious Grooves, and whatever happens to Mike Muir, it's in my control and nobody else's. I feel very comfortable with that. Suicidal's like a person who tells you not to be a fucking wimp, he reflects. Not like, well maybe if you re-evaluated where you were going and you looked back and retreated, that eloquent shit don't work. There's a point where you're either going to do it or you're not. And if you're going to do it, then fucking do it. And if you're not, shut the fuck up. It's simple. On stage, Mike Muir comes on like a major youth leader, delivering breathless mini speeches between songs. And tonight, the biggest cheer from 11,000 fans comes when Muir roars, the craziest thing you can do is believe in yourself. Communication and the letter of the week this week begins... Just wanted to say that Brett Michaels was brilliant at the Gibson Night of 100 Guitars gig on June 26th. The fact that he was there at all after his accident was good to see, but although he had a short set, his performance really knocked me out. I'm not normally compelled to put pen to paper like this, neither have I ever really given Poison a second thought over the years, but his performance was the highlight of an excellent evening and now, five days later, is all I can remember about that gig. I hope Brett continues to make a quick and lasting recovery. Alison Stevens from Reading. So do we, and more Poison updates when we have news. Meanwhile, you win this week's Fabo Letter of the Week prize, editor. It's about time someone pointed out the real reason for Skin's success. No, their LP didn't enter the charts because they're Britain's best new hard rock band, but because in most shops their CD cost under 10 quid. You don't need to be an expert in economics to work out that if your skin CD had been priced 13 to 15 quid like the rest, it'd never have made the charts. Accept it, skin a crap. Rachel Hereford. Rock City, June 30th, Mother's Day out. What more do we need to say? Nothing. But we'll say more anyway. The gig itself was outstanding, but being invited onto the tour bus, listening to Entune and drinking beer with the band was even better. Thanks for a brilliant night with the Arkansas lads, Tom, Dan and Syme from Barnsley. I love Gunn's version of Word Up, but it reminded me of a gig at the Marquee a few years back when Bernie Tom's band, then featuring LA Gunn's man Phil Lewis on vocals, did an equally cracking cover. It seems a shame that such a great talent seems to have disappeared from the scene. As well as being a stunning guitarist and a truly great live performer, Bernie has written some of the most haunting songs I've ever heard, such as Mystery Train and Presences, which have been widely performed. With a bit of luck, a decent record company and a competent management, he could have been deservedly huge. Pete Weverly, Margate. Gagging for a shagging. I think it's about time that a certain sex god from Bradford, that is, Tony Wright from Terrorvision took up this week's GFAS space. I don't think anyone else can make a broad Yorkshire accent sound quite so fucking gorgeous and I think he's the best looking bloke in Britain. So please print a pic. Laura, Tynan Weir. Nouveau professional northerner Tony is a popular bloke. Also gathering, gagging for shagreen uh, nominations from Tony's Trousers of Surrey, Emma of Camberley, Tony's Silver Jeans from Renfrewshire, two discotheque racks of Chatham and Tone's Trousers from Billericay. I find Don K's review of the Dio gig, issue 501, very difficult to take seriously. I think this man is displaying a blatant case of biased journalism. Although I was not at the concert myself, 
His reference to RJD as the old man and Vinny Apice as the world's worst percussionist suggests his slaggings are due more to a grudge than any true reflection of Dio's performance. Dio has contributed a greater service to metal than most of the second-ranked batch of bandwagon jumpers who are praised so readily in Kerrang! could ever do. Ronnie Dio has remained true to himself and his music and by doing so produced some of the finest metal of all time. Long live RJD. Come over to the UK soon to prove your skeptics wrong. Jim Brighton. Thanks for the great Kerrang! album. It was a brilliant idea. Seeing as Kerrang! dominates the heavy metal reading market and great to see such a varied and interesting double set. It's introduced me to some new bands such as Prong, uh, Biohazard and Clawfinger who are absolutely the greatest. It's also let me hear some of the roots of heavy metal, stuff like Priest, Rainbow and Deep Purple. Finally, I have to ask, where were Metallica, Nirvana and Pearl Jam? Also, why Duff McKagan? That was a waste of time. Are there any plans for a part two? Johnny Smith, County Andrew. We'll keep you posted, editor. Short and curlies. BBM, more like OAP. Sod off your sad old tossers and collect your pensions. The Almog Lester. P.S. The Wild Hearts Rule. He's back. The hot rocking king of sleazy rock and roll. The man who likes it all night with the lights on. Yes, Michael Monroe. Stand up. It's time to rock like fuck again and I'll be front of the queue. Lorraine. A little angel splitting up and playing their final few gigs has caused heartbreak across the rock world in 1994. Here are just a few of the letters that Kerrang! received about those. I'd just like to thank the Little Angels for their most excellent performance at the Albert Hall on July the 2nd. They wanted to go out with a bang and they sure did that. What an amazing show. I've never seen anyone with as much energy as them. I was heartbroken when I heard they were splitting up and I still am. I've been a fan of theirs for years and I've never been disappointed by a gig or record they've done. Tony, Bruce, Jimmy, Mark and Rich, you kicked ass everywhere you went. Thanks for the best years of my life. Sharon from Oakham. Little Angels, July 2nd, Royal Albert Hall. Fucking brilliant. But it's just so sad that it had to be the end of a good band. It really doesn't matter what anyone says, they will be missed by all their dedicated followers. Thanks very much guys, love you loads and hope to see you around soon. Tracy Taylor, Bristol. Perhaps it's a good thing that the Little Angels are splitting up. For a band who have many loyal fans, they managed to let a lot of people down by not turning up at the Gibson Guitar Bash. I know people who spent a lot of money getting down there to see what was supposed to be one of their last performances. For a band who hadn't got long left, they could all have all been a little less selfish and showed up. Shit, Brett Michaels managed to go uh, even only after having a serious accident. Cheers, Brett, you were brill. Zach Wilde's cowboy hat, Market Harborough. Little Angels, Leeds Town and Country Club, June 30th. Pure brilliance. All the best to Toby, Bruce, Mark, Jimmy, Rich and the big bad horns for the future. And a big stuff you to all those who gave them nothing but grief over the years. Sarah from Hull. Ill communication. We now come to this week's eight-page power-packed poster pullout. Blimey. Far beyond drunk, Pantera Sepultura Biohazard, the heaviest tour on earth. Plus, these face-melting posters inside. The pictures are one of Evan Seinfeld, Max Cavalera and Phil Anselmo and on the flip side it's Andreas Kisser and Dimebag Daryl. I think the Max Cavalera, Evan Seinfeld, Phil Anselmo one definitely, definitely ended up on my wall because it's not in this copy of Kerrang. Lock up your liquor boozers, it's the Far Beyond Drunk Tour, a vulgar display of guzzling featuring Texan Cakehead's Pantera, Brazilian Beer Monster Sepultura and Hardcore Hoodlums Biohazard, all of whom have been out doing some serious hell-raising stateside as part of what must be one of the heaviest tours of all time. 
risking life, limb, liver, and lens. Kerrang snapper Joe Giron has managed to survive the whole heavier than now experience to bring you this eight page power pack pullout. Lummy, you can almost smell the beer. Sadly, there are no plans for this Titanic tour to hit Blighty in the same drunken manner, although you can bet your beer mat that all three bands will be returning to these shores before the end of the year. Rest assured, we'll keep you posted. Singles, and this week's new singles are reviewed by Paul Rees. First, this week is Age of Panic by Sensor on Ultimate. One of the more metal-tastic slices of vitriol on the marvellous stacked-up album, Age of Panic is run through with guitars like blowtorches and angry vocals. You wouldn't back them in a joke-telling contest, but Sensor are an undeniably excellent band. Boston with their single I Need Your Love on MCA. The best and worst thing you can say about Boston is that their records are immediately distinctive. I Need Your Love, like the past 26 Boston songs, is an immaculately produced dose of grandiose AOR. It sounds like a warm marshmallow. Whiskey River by Super Suckers on Fear and Loathing Stroke Sub Pop. Not a normally wonderful Super Suckers' finest hour, it's all drooled vocals and poisonous cockeyed guitars going astray into a long and laboured swamp rock jam. Only available with a seventh issue of Fear and Loathing fanzine. Probably just as well. My Umbrella by Tripping Daisy on Island. The latest Yank Yobos to launch a bid for their Disturbo rock crown vacated by Perry Farrell and his James Addiction. Tripping Daisy only managed to get as far as the required stupid title. The jerky spunk pop song it covers is spellbinding, only in the sense that it seems to dis disappear completely up its own anus. Shine by Collective Soul on Atlantic. It ain't grunge, screams the press release. Apart from the one vaguely distracting bit that sounds like it's been lifted off a Soundgarden demo that is, the rest of this Georgia Quintet debut single is harmless pop rock filled with underplayed guitars and some very nice harmonies. All in all, about as necessary as a chocolate fireplace. Single of the week this week is Out of Hand by Entombed on Earache. You could never mistake Entombed for anything other than a bloody heavy metal band. They have long hair. They wear bad t-shirts and they write riffs that sound like blast furnaces. Out of hand is a fearsome chunk of po-faced bludgeon, the sort of relentlessly brutal mayhem that all citizens of nondescript European countries should produce at will. Their cover of God of Thunder, meanwhile, is infinitely closer to the true spirit of Kiss than anything on the horribly ill-conceived Kiss My Ass. All hail. We now come to a piece in Koran called Priest Slam Halford and I'll give you one guess what this is about. Is Rob Halford set to rejoin Judas Priest? Following Halford's sensational revelations, his former Priest bandmates respond to their ex-singer's comments in another shocking Big K exclusive. Rob Halford stunned his former bandmates last, last week when he told Karang that Judas Priest was still a part of his life. Halford quit Priest two years ago to put all his energy into a new power metal band fight, but the singer insisted, I can't and won't let go of Priest. I hope that things might get patched up, and when that day comes, we'll see where we go next. It is a sensational U-turn from Halford to which Judas Priest feel obliged to respond. Surviving Priest members Glenn Tipton, KK Downing, and Ian Hill issued the following statement this week exclusively to Kerrang. Glenn Tipton, KK Downing, and Ian Hill had not wanted to discuss the Rob Halford Judas Priest situation anymore, but owing to the recent comments Rob made in his Kerrang interview, they feel they have to answer. In the last two years or more, 
Rob Halford has contradicted himself continually and upset just about everyone. It was inevitable and predictable that sooner or later he would resort to this latest approach to try to salvage all the damage he has done. In last week's Kerrang, he states that he has not shut the door on the band and that Priest's music is still a part of his life, insinuating that he may rejoin at some point. This is from someone who's tried to take all the credit for Priest's success when it suited him, but more often has viciously criticised the band's music and remaining members both personally and publicly. By doing this, he has also insulted the fans who followed the band, bought the albums and who have always believed in Judas Priest. At the time, we regretted Rob's decision to leave, but it was his own choice. And now, unfortunately, even if we wanted him back, it's too late. His recent direction, compositions and bewildering imitations of other bands and their music has left him embarrassingly transparent and has blown his credibility completely. Sadly, we have no choice now. There can be no place for him in Priest. The few well-chosen words he is now uttering to regain favour are supposed to make everything alright. They will fool no one. The references to legal battle with Judas Priest's publishing companies were misleading. These disputes were in fact exclusively with EMI Music. We would neither attempt to or want to make claims on any fight songs. Finally, in fairness to Priest's fans and in answer to any confusion his comments may have caused, we have to say that nothing from our side has changed, including our phone numbers. He has not called us in two and a half years and we don't expect him to now. We will continue as we've said and all being well there will be a new Priest album next year. We know it has to be good, Mr Halford won't be part of it and through the pages of Kerrang we would like to say sorry but by his own doing the door is closed. It is he who shut it. Glenn Tipton, KK Downing and Ian Hill. Fighting words there from Judas Priest. Um, they did actually get back with Rob Halford in 2003. So it just goes to show you can't trust any of these metal musicians when they say they're never going to get back with someone because they did nine years later. Let's move on now to records. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record it's so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. The first record reviewed this week is Gilby Clark with his album Pawn Shop Guitars. This is reviewed by Paul Elliott and this gets 4Ks. This was supposed to be a side project. Gilby getting his rocks off between marathon world tours with GNR. But a month or two back, Gilby got fired by Axl Rose and suddenly Pawn Shop Guitars is Gilby's first post GNR solo record. Suddenly, it's a whole lot more important. No mere plaything. Just as well, Gilby made a very good record. When Gilby's predecessor, Izzy Stradling, quit GNR, he cut an album in the vein of the Rolling Stones' underrated Black and Blue. Cool, spare rock and roll with flavours of blues and reggae, the kind of stuff that Stones guitarist Keith Richards knocks out on his solo albums. Gilby has covered the Stones' 71 country honk Dead Flowers, ironically with Axel singing whining backups, but pawn shop guitars isn't Gilby's stars in their eyes Keith Skip. In fact, it owes as much to the Beatles as to the Stones. With that in mind, Gilby told Kerrang back in April that his album might be too lightweight for Guns fans. But one blast of opening cut Cure Me or Kill Me and Guns fans will be hooked. Cure Me grooves on the baddest riff of 94, something like GNR's bad obsession only leaner, meaner and tougher. And if not a great singer, Gilby like Izzy and Keith has a nicotine stained voice that's pure rock and roll. The difference is that Gilby can sing a trippy Beatles inspired pop song and get away with it. Black is also dosed up on psychedelia but mixes Beatles references with hard rock licks. The chorus, like most of Gilby's hooks, is a killer. By branding some of these songs blatant pop, Gilby reveals his love of songwriters like Lennon and McCartney and Mark Boland of T-Rex. But don't be misled, 
This is a ballsy rock and roll album and often those pawn shop guitars are on overdrive. Tijuana Jail is sleazy, fast and loose, Gilby's own double talking drive, Shut Up is as punchy and breezily cool as classic cheap tricks circa in colour, Skin and Bones is a carefree acoustic tune that Gilby has the sus to leave uncluttered and unpolished. Pawn Shop Guitars is at least as good as Izzy's Juju Hounds album, it's also better than the Spaghetti Internet, better than Duff's solo album and better than the new Rolling Stones thing. It kickstarts Gilby's solo career in great style and it raises the question, could Guns N' Roses really afford to dump him? The next album reviewed is an album titled Killed For Less by Sensefield. This is reviewed by Claire Douse and this gets 5Ks. The name might not be familiar yet, but for any devotee of the US West Coast post-punk underground and for anyone with an appetite for hard-edged alternative rock with melody and bite, Sensefield's first full album Killed For Less is an essential purchase. The Quintet, formed in part from ex-members of hardcore act Reason To Believe, have produced themselves and on a doubtless tiny budget, an addictive album bursting with beautifully crafted melodies, inspired lyrics and littered with the effortlessly potent vocal harmonies perfected by the likes of Cheap Trick or Red Cross. Killed For Less bursts in on the aching today and tomorrow with crisp guitars driven along by the powerhouse drumming of Scott McPherson, whose performance throughout the entire album is exceptional. The title track, with its sinister Now I Can Kiss You Without Killing You refrain, is flooded with formidably tight riffing and glides smoothly into the heaviest track. Sensefield, unlike most alternative outfits, are equally adept at crunching dual guitar driven tracks like Blue Glass Man or wielding acoustics as in the heartfelt Heather. And just when you think the album seems to be losing a little momentum, it soars back with its high point, the epic The Fault of Living, with a classic melody that's so seamlessly crafted as to be as instantly familiar and comfortable as your favourite sweater. Closer Sage is simply masterly. A rather lame sleeve is the record's only weak point. Killed for Less is probably one of the finest debut albums you'll hear in 1994. The live shows must be absolutely electric. Next review is for the album Bag of Tricks by Annihilator. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, this gets 3Ks. Only Annihilator could call an album Bag of Tricks. For one thing, they're setting themselves up for uncharitable reviewers to use the term bag of shite. Guitar mastermind Jeff Waters and his ever-changing bunch of hired hands have undoubtedly been moored by the changing metal climate. But it's been partly their own fault. Their last album, Set the World on Fire, was well below par, except in the title track. Bag of Tricks is a 75 minute odds and sods compilation for fans only. On that basis it su succeeds including detailed liner notes from Roadrunner A&R Chief Monty Connor and the odd rare pick. The 16 tracks here consist of 4 live tracks including a cover of ACDC's Livewire, some demo versions of more familiar numbers, an unreleased track Fantastic Things uh, and 3 of the 1986 demo cuts that got Annihilator signed in the first place. These latter recordings are intriguing and of surprisingly high quality, considering they were laid down on Young Waters' four-track machine with the Canadian himself doing death metal vocals. It emphasises the contrast between the underground Annihilator revolt and the most recent Annihilator, which thought it could get away with ballads. Maybe Bag of Tricks will help Waters reassess his situation. In truth, the compilation is no ripoff for the devoted, even if it does feature a demo version of the atrocious cheese anthem Night Jumps Queen. Night's Jumps Queen if you know what I mean. This album is titled Liquor in the Front by the Reverend Horton Heat. This is reviewed by Paul Rees and gets 4Ks. The Reverend Horton Heat are a carbuncle in the face of the politically correct 90s. Lewd, rude and crude, 
they're the redneck bar band from hell, Texan Branch. In case you're in danger of missing the point, they've called their first major label LP Liquor in the Front. This is a no-brain old-time rock and roll played through cheap amps by men with dirty fingernails. It sounds like the cramps in worn jeans and beer-stained t-shirts. The stray cats after they've been knuckled dusted down a dark alley and the most corrupt surf pop bebop badasses on earth. It's been produced by Al Jorgsen here, allowing his Buck Satan alter ego to run wild. And if you're looking at it from the bottom of a bottle, it is quite inexplicably glorious. The good reverend himself, one Jim Heath, is at his best bawling out lo-fi lean and mean punkabilly tunes like Vanist of the Bad, 504 and Yeah Right. In a voice that sounds like an overflowing ashtray or crooning, liquor, beer and wine with a snake smile stuck to its filthy little mouth. Behind their leader, stand-up bassist Jimbo and drummer Taz conduct their own spastic square dance, swinging like lounge lizards one minute, playing furious and filthy rockabilly the next. They get truly weird and wired on I Can Surf and genuinely hot, blue and righteous on Rockin' Dog. You won't need to be too clever to belch up your beer, pound your partner and raise the roof with the Reverend Horton Heat. They ain't about to change the world, but they might just make your life a little better place to be. Chart Attack now, and the number one single this week is Word Up by Gun. Number one in the indie metal charts is still Stacked Up by Sensor, and number one in the album charts is Purple by Stone Temple Pilots. The reader's chart this week is Sammy Shammy the Sheep Shagger from Lincolnshire. Okay, number one in Sammy's chart is Millennium by Killing Joke, two is Torn by Swamp Walk, Three, True Belief, Paradise Lost. Four, Oblivion, Terrorvision. Five, Inside, Stiltskin. Six, Sucker Punch, Wild Hearts. Seven, School Life, Sex and Death. Eight, A Strange Guns and Roses. Nine, Gone Bad, Widowmaker. And ten, More Monarchy by Compulsion. Star Tracks this week is Disco Doom Dude Lee Dorian of Cathedral. He divulges the sounds currently gracing his death deck. Number one, Album Advance Tape by Electric Wizard. Two, The Skull by Trouble. Three, Show em How, Pentagram. Four, Within the Realm of the Dying Sun, Dead Can Dance. And five, Death Church by Rudimentary Peni. In the Kerrang! Classifieds, we have a couple of adverts in the personals, which uh, begin. Richard Day, X Roadhouse. Please get in touch with Jackie Warrington in wheelchair. Box number K6109. Brett Michaels. I'll be your taxi and your driver. I'll be the road if you need. Love, Calf Lady with the Ring. Sorry missed you at Wembley by Mins kiss i'm pretty sure calf lady with the ring wrote in either last week or the week before um having a one-way conversation with brett michaels i'm ever so slightly worried if she writes in again next week calf hope you're okay next week in kerrang on sale july 20th the skids are back Sebastian back here has faxed over a, another letter. Oh, God, here we go. Hello, all. Check it out. The return of Skid Row. You're all invited. Tampa, July the 4th. Headlining 35,000. Sold out. So we're all invited to this headlining gig for 35,000 people, but it's sold out. So even if any of us were in Tampa on July the 4th, we wouldn't be able to go to the sold out gig, even though we're invited. Cheers, Sebastian back. I've got to say, this letter, or faxed letter, is definitely better than the one that he wrote last time where he was talking about Kurt Cobain um, what did he say he was talking about Kurt Cobain and how he, when he killed himself it was really selfish blah 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 and he was just sticking his oar in where it wasn't wanted anyway Skid Row world exclusive the new material killer interview hot new picks 
when a hand-scrawled note from Sebastian Bach arrived at Karain Towers courtesy of our own feral fax machine, we were gobsmacked. Yeah, you read it here first. Those mavericks of metal Skid Row are back. They're having a party and a Seb's note pictured above right says, you're all invited. Yep, next issue we bring you a world exclusive report on the Skid's long-awaited return to the stage. The new material, the highest and heaviest, new monster picks, and an exclusive interview with the New Jersey Marauders. It's all in next week's mighty copy of the Big Kerrang. Get it or regret it. Plus, the Wild Hearts. Ginger on the split with CJ. Little Angels, the last interview. The Almighty, cranking up the new LP. Faith No More, Who Needs Jim Martin? And tons more on Killing Joke, Jackal, Entombed, Brian Adams, Pride and Glory, and the hottest news and the killer reviews. They're all in Kerrang, your ultimate guide to the week in metal. Every Wednesday. Blimey, I think that might be the longest advertisement for a next issue of Kerrang! that Kerrang! have ever done. So that concludes this week's episode of the podcast. I thank you all so much for listening. As always, it's really nice that you do, that there's still a good amount of people that you know want to listen, want to hear about what's going on in Kerrang! in 1994. I'm still really enjoying doing this. I've got to say, um, sometimes... Especially I've noticed in the summer, it, it can be a bit of a strain to try and, you know, take the time out to do this. Uh, but I always manage to find the time because because I really enjoy it. I really, really love going back and reading these old Kerangs. I've been doing this for almost seven months now and I'm still loving it. I am still think the stuff that I'm reading, I'm still getting into new bands. I'm still, you know, finding out stuff that I didn't know before. It's just really, really interesting. I'm still really enjoying it and I hope... For our continued listeners that you're still listening to it. If you have any feedback, if you have anything that you wanna, you know, you wanna tell me, you wanna you wanna talk about with what we talk about here at Kerrangback Issues, um, my ears are always open. I'm always up for a chat online, on emails, you know, however you want to contact me. So um, yeah, I'll, we'll be back next week and talk to you all soon. Okay, look after yourselves. Cheers, thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>